Obviously, Doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. I Welcome back to Heat Fiction. I'm here today with a very special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nicola May Goldberg. I'm a writer, uh, mostly of fiction. My most recent book is a novel called Nothing Can Hurt You. Um, it's published by Bloomsbury last year. Um, and I have a book coming out next year called Iris and Dallas. Uh, I also write some poetry, uh, very occasional nonfiction. Um, I live in New York. Did I say that? Um, uh, if you want to. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much all that's relevant. I don't know if this is really awkward, but I just wanted to say that I really loved your book. <laughs> oh, thank you. That it was great. Always. Nice to hear. Um, but the reason I brought you on here today was because I wanted to talk about white oleander. And I know that's, I, I just saw you posting about it and I thought you'd yeah. be a great guest for it. Yeah. Um, I love that book. It was one of the first grown up books I read. Um, like one of the first books that wasn't written for children or young adults. Um, I think my mom, um, probably read it first and it was just in our house and I was probably 11 or 12 when I read it um and a lot of things went over my head when I read it for the first time I also learned a lot of things when I read it for the first time and I think it was really formative for me and it's probably um just still a major reference point for me even um like 16 or 17 years later. Interesting that you uh, mentioned that it was one of the first grown-up books that you read because I, the first time I read it was only a couple years ago. Um, and I start reading it expecting it to be kind of YA-ish. I thought it was like a coming-of-age really? novel in the classical sense. And then um, basically from the first page, it kind of hit me that I was, well, first of all, really well-written. It's beautiful prose. And yeah, it is the topics it covers and it basically has nothing to do with YA whatsoever. I don't know why I thought it was going to be YA. I guess it's just like the fact that um, the majority of the plot takes place when the main character is very young and underage. It starts when she's like 12 and like goes along as she turns 18 and 20 and so on. So I guess I kind of expected it to be like, a, I don't know, a typical teenage narrative, but it really wasn't. Yeah, I guess it sort of raises the question of like what YA is. And I don't really know because I mean, it sort of is it's about a, a young girl and it is a coming of age novel it takes place I think between when she's like 11 years old and until she's I think like 19 or 20 if, if I remember correctly um yeah. I, rem I remember the first time I read Kelly Link who isn't really considered a YA author um but I found pretty monsters face out in the like young adult section of my local bookstore um, when I was in high school and it caught my eye because it looked so different from anything I had seen in that section before. Um, it, yeah, I guess it's it's sort of like a lot of categories in publishing kind of arbitrary. Um, I know that with Nothing Can Hurt You, there's been like some confusion over whether it's like a crime novel or a real novel. And that's been sort of 
frustrating to me. Like it seems yeah. like a really arbitrary distinction and like as if like murder doesn't happen in real people's lives. Like it as if it's like this separate kind of yeah. reality, which it isn't. But I mean, I guess the way that people usually talk about YA it has certain like genre conventions, like um I don't know, I guess fairy tale elements would be one of them. It's kind of what comes to mind when I think about it. Like yeah. sort of like, I, not necessarily magic, but like supernatural stuff one way or another. And like, I mean, thinking of Twilight, like kind of like the book that yeah. started it all really. And yeah. I um, love Twilight, honestly. Like Me too. I, <laughs> I, I remember like I was reading it on a school night and my mom like took it away from me because I had to like go to sleep. And I think as an adult... That's, that's still what I really am looking for in fiction is like, I want books that I, that are going to make me stay up all night reading them. And it's so much harder to find when you're an adult than when you're a teenager, like that kind of experience as a reader. Um, I think White and, Oleander really has it in a way. Yes, like, absolutely. The first time, like even now when I reread it for this episode, I really like, you know, I couldn't walk away from it because it's just something, I think one of the things that makes the narrative so engaging is like the way that it flows like the language mm-hmm. is so beautiful that it sort of engulfs you in the story and you don't you know you don't struggle imagining the things that she describes absolutely it's so beautiful and it's so um sort of simple and un- and unpretentious like it it makes sense when the narrator is still a child um it it isn't bizarre um that i gu- i guess even though the prose is very sophisticated it does it doesn't it's not jarring given the the protagonist's age um and I think that's part of, of the reason that even as a kid it was so compelling is that is that kind of prose and I think that's so difficult to do to write in a way that is um that has all those elements oh absolutely and I think it also really makes a lot of sense within the context of the story because in the story the main character Astrid her mother is a poet and she Mm -hmm. grows up around you know classic literature and poetry and sort of like more sophisticated influences even her neighbor you know is into like classic Hollywood and so like her references are very sort of mature and um yeah sophisticated there's even a point in the book where she goes um to live with Claire um and she notices a painting I don't remember what painting it was but she notices a painting on the wall and you know she names the painter correctly and Claire's like really surprised oh you know you know I think it was Durer she's like oh you know who Durer is but it makes a lot of sense the Durer context yeah it makes a lot of sense within the context of the story though because she is supposed to be sort of um a grown-up yeah 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 and uh, even the story even begins with her talking about how she um doesn't feel like she fits in at school because of the way that her life is with her mother and how grown up she feels when she's around her mother and how she's expected to behave around other children. And there's this sort of like contrast between the two. Yeah. Which interesting is like, I'll, that's also sort of a stock thing in a lot of YA is the protagonist is an outsider in their school or their environment or their like dystopian, whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess that's also sort of true of most literature I, in, in that the protagonist has to be an outsider to some degree. Otherwise, they can't really give the reader like a bird's eye view of their environment. No, absolutely. I guess what differentiates it um, from other way novels in this particular context is the fact that it doesn't really... <laughs> 
talk about school at all. Like that's something that's basically left out of the narrative for the most part. It's really most more about her, um, her relationships and her, um, the way she interacts with other adults around her and the way that they treat her. Yeah. It's only, I think, um, yeah, school is definitely sort of an afterthought, um, in the book, uh, only when she's with Claire, which is sort of the most stable environment um, for a while, uh, does she sort of focus for a little while on school. But um, for most of the book, there is just too much chaos for that to really be um, of interest. And which is, you know, as a reader is more than fine. To, you know, that's not yeah. something I think anyone really misses reading about. No, absolutely. Um, actually, the part that where she stays with Claire is probably one of my favorite parts of the book. It's the one, it's also the longest really? part, I guess. It's the one that, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I find Claire as a character particularly interesting. Yeah. Should we give a spoiler alert? I don't, I don't know if there's anyone listening to this who hasn't read it. I don't know if this would be interesting if you have Oh, this is it. not a spoiler-free podcast. You can, you can okay. say anything. All right. Okay. So, um, so what did you think of the, of the Claire part? It's really heartbreaking because you see Astrid getting so close to these things that she's been deprived of her whole life, um, uh, to stability, both emotional and financial. And to, she starts to sort of differentiate herself from her mother more. She starts to sort of imagine her life outside of her mother's orbit, um, her life outside of LA, uh, she starts to sort of develop as an artist herself. Um, of course, there's like a real affection between her and Claire. Um, and then um, when that's taken away, it's um, like we know it can't, the book isn't going to have a happy ending in that sense. I think it has like a sort of a hopeful ending and a very beautiful ending, but like Ash is not going to get adopted and go off to college and live happily ever after it's not that kind of book we you know it's there yeah that's not the expectation that's set up um so even so as you know she's sort of like accumulating this hat like all this happiness like there's I think as a reader you feel like a kind of dread you know it's not going to end well and it's a question of like what's going to happen to to destroy this like newfound peace in Astrid's right. life um so yeah I think I think it um I think I think my favorite section of the book is uh, is with Olivia though interesting yeah um that it's interesting that you bring it up because I watched the movie before I read the book so so I, you know, when I read the book for the first time, I did not expect that part to be in it because that part was left out in the film. And yeah. it's sort of seemed out of place in the book, if that makes sense, because I think um, maybe it's it was because I watched the film first, but I think the other sections of the books and the people she stays with kind of seem, they all, like, especially with Claire, because Claire's kind of the opposite of her mother. So it makes a lot of sense for Claire to be one of the most, you know, important characters in the book because that's that's how, as you said, like, that's how she grows into a separate person from her mother. That's how she learns to what, you know, what motherly affection, what, um, love can feel like well as with Olivia although she's an intriguing character and her philosophy is very like flashed out and that's also very interesting but I think I just couldn't really see because her mother is obviously opposed to anybody who bonds with Astrid in any way but Mm -hmm. I couldn't really see that direct sort of 
yeah, dichotomy between her and her mother. So Olivia kind of seemed a little out of place for me. But what did you think about her? Um, I just remember being really fascinated by that character. I think in a really similar way to Astrid. I guess I was probably, when I first read the book, I was the same age that Astrid is when she meets Olivia. So, um, which I didn't realize until right now, but like, I like was similarly kind of similar, sim- I know how to talk, sorry. Similarly kind of starstruck by that character um, and still remember like all these details, like the Penhaligon's perfume and the tortoiseshell comb and how she throws away the comb because one tooth is broken on it. Um, and this really sharp contrast between this like precise elegance of Olivia's life and um, I can't remember the name of Maple's foster mother. Maple, something with an M. Yeah. Oh, no, this is going to bother me. Uh, um, but it's the one who um, makes her dye her hair blonde in the bathroom, right? And like babysit her kids and stuff. Yeah. The one who, she's like, awful. And she's like awful in this very like suburban, tacky, um, Avon lady way. Um, it's interesting, actually, that you bring up that I the like the contrast between her and um, Olivia because I didn't even think about it that way because I, I guess I was complaining at comparing all the foster parents to um, Astrid's mother, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like, there is a very stark contrast between her fos- uh, foster parent at that particular home and Olivia and like the difference between elegance and like, yeah, like suburban cheapness and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, sort of Olivia's philosophy about sex, um, which like Astrid, of course, comes to sex in like a pretty horrifying way, and like the way her own philo- her own philosophy about it develops is like reading it as an adult is so much like sadder and scarier than reading it as a kid. I think like you don't really um, obviously children never know how vulnerable they are because if they did, they'd be terrified. Um, so. And I just remember like being really mystified and intrigued by that. Uh, Like really, it was probably the first book I read that talked about sex that explicitly. And so uh, that was very interesting to me. Just these like wildly different ways that the different characters in the book view sex and use sex uh, successfully or unsuccessfully to get what they want. Yeah, no, I, I've, as, yeah, the depiction of sex and white oleander is really interesting because it's not, it's kind of explicit in a way that it doesn't shy away from the character's desires. And it's very like flashed out what exactly it is that every character wants to get from it. Like, especially in Olivia's case. And I think also in Astrid's mother's case, um, like in the beginning, you know, the whole monologue where she's like, oh, never, never let a man uh, stay the night, never yeah. apologize, never explain. Like the sort yeah. of it, all the characters are established through their relationship to sex, but it's not pornographic in any way. Like the sex no. scenes themselves are not explicit. It's very much, it's, it's very movie like in a way because it's like, you know, the camera, it just flashes it to black. It cuts away at like, yeah, just the right moment. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't become too pornographic. It's not like, in in, like that in any way but it's very it's very it's very erotic and it's very explicit 
about yeah characters' desires. Yeah, I mean about also about drugs and like there were just like a lot of things in, that I encountered reading this book before I encountered them in real life. And I think I don't know. It, it's funny to try to, to sort of like map out backwards you know, how much this book influenced my own, you know, framework of whatever. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I guess we all have that with books. I like read Lolita when I was way too young. So that definitely influenced the way that I viewed like those kinds of uh, relationships and stuff. But I I do find it interesting in that book uh, to like explain it, I guess, to the audience or maybe somebody listening to this hasn't read the book. Um, like in the book, Astrid, when she's 14, she starts a relationship with her foster mother's uh, boyfriend, whom she calls Uncle Ray, which kind of makes the whole thing a lot creepier as well. Because for the whole book, she's just referring to him as Uncle Ray. She doesn't even call him by his first name. Like he's always kind of seen as this familial figure. Yeah. Is she 14? I thought she was younger. Um Maybe she's younger when they start sleeping together, but she's 14 when she gets shot. Because there's this one scene right before she gets shot where um, Star, like her, you know, foster parent, she's talking to Uncle Ray and she says, oh, like, what what is it that you see in her? She's, um, no, no, she's talking to Astrid about like, like after she realizes that probably she's not sleeping with him because she first accuses her of it. And then she decides that, oh no, maybe not because you're just 14 and you don't even have any, uh, you don't even have your breasts developed yet. Like she, because there's this whole yeah. thing about like um, how she's basically flat compared to Star and her daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And Astrid says something like, Jesus wouldn't like you saying this. Like she's, um, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of her first moment of manipulation uh, which is something we see her mother do throughout the book pretty um, fluently. Um, but it's the first time we see Astra do it, and uh, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, you know, with every single foster home that she stays at, she kind of becomes more and more like her mother in a way up until Claire. Claire's kind yes. of like the breaking point where she breaks away from her from her mother. But up until that point, she's sort of like slowly growing into being her. And even yeah. with Olivia, like um, I guess the, the reason that kind of that part didn't really resonate with me or like stood out to me in that way is because like even when she's around Olivia, she's still constantly thinking about like the way that her mother treats men and the way like what it is that her mother gets from men and stuff. Yeah. Um, then there's this really interesting part where she gives a boy in the park a blowjob for some, in exchange for some weed. And it seems, at least to me, pretty clear that she doesn't really want the weed that much, that she's sort of trying out what it might feel like to be like Olivia, um, to be a woman who isn't like her mother. Um, and... Do you think she sees Olivia as like a stronger person than her mother because of the fact that Olivia sort of, you know, is the one in control during these interactions and her mom, despite the fact that she, you know, instilled this philosophy or like independence and, you know, whatever in her, she still at the end of the day killed a man because of the love that she felt for him. And, and is in prison, like, like yeah. killed him and got caught and is in prison. Like, um, uh, I don't think Astrid is yet at the point where she can sort of see how full of shit her mother is. And I think that even as a reader, I 
didn't until like I like recently read it and I was like oh this woman is insane like yeah. or like not even insane she's just kind of a phony like she's like the the sort of certainty she displays is so in contrast to her actions and to her life um like for someone who you know claims to sort of understand the entire world so well she doesn't really know how to navigate it at all um yeah and I mean, even um, the way that she kills the man is sort of something out of like an ancient poem. It's not exactly the most practical way to kill someone. Like yeah. it, it all seems very much like she's one of those people who read about, read a lot about life, but hasn't actually really lived it that much. Despite like her travels and stuff, she seems very much the kind of person who like lives on her own head, which is not yeah. like, as th- the kind of person that Astrid sees her as. Well, there's this quote from Astrid that I think comes later in the book, I think comes during the section where she's living with Claire, where she says she's never, she's never where she is. She's only in her head. Um, and that always really resonated with me, um, as like something kind of aspirational, even though, even now, even though I can see that character, I think more clearly than I could when I read her before. Um, but there's something, I mean, there's obviously a kind of safety in being inside your own head always and sort of that kind of detachment, deliberate detachment from reality. No, definitely. And I, but I think it's interesting that the, the one who, the one character who definitely can't see that her mother let that, um, God, I forgot her name, Ingrid, right? Her name is Ingrid. Yeah. Um, that Ingrid is <laughs> the only character who can't recognize that she's full of shit is Claire. She's the only one who kind of takes all of her words as yeah. truth. And she's the one who sort of, I think there's even a, I think there's even a point in the book where she says that she seems so strong. Like I want to learn how to be more like her. Yeah. Claire's totally under her spell. Yeah, she totally is. And it's really interesting because Claire is the kind of character, you know, she's, um, she's very depressed. She like struggles with all the like suicidal thoughts and ideations. And just in general, she seems like a very miserable person and paranoid and afraid of everything. But the way, and she's the kind of person that you typically think would be the one who lives in her own head. Cause this is the way that we imagine, you know, uh, sensitive people to be like, but then She's not really, though. It's Ingrid who's yeah, a lot more I, sort of... And I think Astrid notes that a few times that, like, Claire is sort of incapable of sort of dealing with reality. Like, I think there's, like, an interaction with a homeless man that really troubles Claire. Like, she can't... Like, he... I think he, like, asks to touch her hair and she can't say no. Does yeah. that sound right? Am I imagining that? I don't know. No, um, no, no. There was that bit in the book. And then eventually he starts going off about how he hasn't been with a woman for like 20 years. And Oh, yeah. Okay. Claire gets completely right. freaked out. Yeah. Now you're imagining it yeah. right. Um, yeah. I I think, yeah, Claire, Claire's a, an interesting character. I think those moments are foreshadowing her death and, and that... Um, as a person who, for whom reality is just too much, is too painful. Though I, I do have to say that, like, in my, like, later readings of the book, Claire's suicide doesn't make as much sense. Um, like, uh, I think in the book, it's really pinned to Ingrid, that Ingrid's able to, from prison with words alone is able to 
drive Claire to suicide. And I, I guess even though Claire is, um, you know, shown as a fra- as a fragile person early on, I'm not sure I com- it makes complete sense. Um, and then Astrid um, like realizes that um, Claire and Claire's husband, I can't, but Ron, is that his name? Yeah, I think his name is Ron. Like wanted to get a foster child as like a babysitter to make sure that Claire didn't kill herself. I'm like, and I was like, that's a stupid idea. I don't think a person would, like an adult person would come up with that. Like that seems really like not very smart. Um, yeah. In the film, it's her mother who says that. She says, um, why do you think they got like a teenager and not like, why didn't they adopt a baby? Like, you were on suicide watch the whole time. But it does seem kind of bizarre because, like, why would you get someone? Because she also, she's, like, recovering from a bullet wound. She's recovering from having been attacked by a dog. So she has a bunch of, like, medical, um, like, physical issues yeah, she's that she's just, still dealing she's with. She's just come, like, she's been starved in, in her last home. Um, yeah. Like, if, if you wanted someone on suicide watch, Astrid would not be that person um you also can just put a person on suicide watch like it's that's not like a (laughs) like you could hire a a housekeeper yeah there's there's like other options I I don't know it just like um that to me just seemed kind of like maybe an element of the book that um but it makes a lot of sense from Astrid's perspective, though, because that's kind of around the point where she's coming to. That's when she starts seeing her mother as like a malicious, and you know, she, when she starts to hate her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it makes sense for her to like to like think that her mother is capable of something like that, because I mean, she, you know. On one hand, she sees her, she starts seeing her as sort of the murderer that she is, but also at the same time, she thinks of her as all capable and all powerful as a lot of kids think of their parents. So it's kind of like, and the two ideas sort of like sort of mixed together to like create this, you know, delusion in her head that somehow her mother is like powerful and evil enough to influence someone to kill themselves from a prison, like when she's locked up. It does, I guess it does make sense that in order to, differentiate herself from her mother Astrid has to hate her in a way that like matches how much she idolized her before the Santa Ana is brewing hot from the desert that fall only the oleanders thrived Maybe the wind was the reason my mother did what she did. If it was, I wouldn't have known. I lived in her shadow then. She was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. I know everybody thinks that when they're small, but she was the most beautiful woman most people had ever seen. The way that her mother raised her was very much as them together as a separate unit from everybody else. And the kind of yeah. things that she said to her were basically like, oh, we're the Vikings, you know, we're the wolves, yeah. we're, we're capable of Even everything. their names, like the names Ingrid and Astrid are so similar. Um, and they're and they're not particularly common names, but they're phonetically very similar. And um, I think that's sort of relevant. Like it, it, make, it makes sense that Ingrid would choose the name Astrid for her daughter 
uh, given how she raises her and how she sees her as an extension of herself. Absolutely. And they're also Danish names and like foreign and, you know, distant and like separate from everybody else around them. Yeah. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the foster mother she's living with when she meets Olivia, because I think she's like the most American of the, um, of the foster families, um, like most aggressively American. Um, And we, we sort of see how out of place Astrid is in that environment and in that culture. And then uh like later on she's living with a Russian woman and then at the end of the book she's living in Berlin and um honestly um when I was in college I think uh, like probably like the biggest reason I decided to spend a semester in Berlin was the way that it's described in White Oleander um (laughs) it it had such a strong impression on me and I of course like reread it many times after the first time I read it but like it I I don't know uh it's done sort of lightly like it's not um one of the like more explicit elements of the book but the sort of like cultural differences um uh it's Astrid and Ingrid sort of have like a culture of two that it isn't necessarily European. Um, it's not like Danish specifically, but it's definitely not American. Um, yeah. And it's sort of interesting to see Astrid navigate that throughout the book. Well, I kind of find it interesting about like the two of them, and it's kind of unclear whether or not Ingrid was born in the U.S. or if she was born in Denmark and then immigrated to the U.S. when she was a kid or if she moved there when she was an yeah. adult. Like, that's kind of left open. I think at some point in the book, she alludes to her having, like, a very um, faint Danish accent that's hardly recognizable. But again, it's, like, totally, you know, open to interpretation whether or not that just comes from her, you know, I don't know, travel yeah, every day or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. With her, it could totally be (laughs) done on purpose as well. But I think um, it's really interesting that there's definitely like a sense of like um, alienation and also just Astrid being very atomized from from everybody else around her. And like reading it, like rereading it now, especially like during the events of the last couple of years and everything that's been happening, that sense of like um, just, you know, children and people living completely separately from each other just by being in the same place it's resonates in a different way as well yeah and especially like perpetual like, alienation yeah no exactly and the book came out when like in the late 90s and that that was around the time mm-hmm. that where you know like globalization all of these things were just starting but there is a very sort of and it's interesting as well like the author janet um finch she she's American, but she went to university in England, if I'm not mistaken, because she wanted to study European history. And when she was living in the I'm UK, her right now, so I actually don't really know anything about her. Um, I just like skimmed her <laughs> Wikipedia page and like, um, I think her author's website, but uh, she, maybe she was getting her master's in the UK or something, but there's a bit in, on her Wikipedia page about how when she was, um, she was like laying, uh, like when she was about to fall asleep in her dorm room, she, um, decided that what she really wanted to do with her life was be an author and I thought that was like a very sort of vivid oh yeah that's vivid cool. detail as well because it again sort of I don't know sort of 
again, it has something to do with like alienation and feeling very, because I can just see it, like, you know, like an, an image of her just laying in bed and thinking like, oh, this, this is what I want to do with my life. Like being really far away from home, far away from everything that she knows. And I think, have you, have you read any of her other books? I read Painted Black a couple of years ago. Me too. Did you like it? Um, I liked it less than I liked Boyd Oleander, but it was quite good. Yeah, same. I feel like I should read it again because I think I, maybe I was comparing it to White Oleander too much to like it. And I need to sort of give it a fair shake though. I feel like I should really read The Revolution of Marina M, which is her book set during the Russian Revolution, because I really loved the Russian Revolution. I was like really obsessed with the Russian Revolution as a kid. Um, and, <laughs> uh, wasn't everyone. Um, and, um, and, and I love Janet Fitch, obviously. So I feel like I should probably read that. Definitely. I mean, it's interesting though, in Painted Black, there's also like a very sort of complicated and complex mother-son relationship. Yeah, I do remember that. that. Um, but what do you think about, <laughs> I guess, like, what is like your main takeaway from the relationship between Astrid and Ingrid? Because I think obviously like it's very, um, it varies a lot for the book, like their dynamic changes a lot. But what is like one of the things that you sort of walked away the first time you read it? I can tell you what, like I walked away from, with, from like the book as a whole the first time I read it and really the first few times I read it, um, which was really not about the mother-daughter dynamic at all. Um, like even though it's obviously a sort of a, a book about mothers and daughters, I didn't really think of it that way. Um, like I really thought of it as a book about Astrid. Um, and to me, it was a, a book that made me feel like there was nothing in life to be afraid of because anything that happened like anything I experienced or witnessed, no matter how horrifying, I would be able to write about it. And it wasn't until like a few, a couple of years after that, that I became really serious about writing. But that I think that was one of the things that really made me want to become a writer was that it, that it meant that there was nothing to be afraid of. Um, it was it was a way of looking at the world that really appealed to me. Um, and talking about the book now, I what strikes me most about Astrid and Ingrid's relationship is how normal it is, even in the very abnormal circumstances. Um, that the way Astrid, like at first, idolizes and then hates and then sort of comes to see her mother as just a human um who's imperfect um but but not irredeemable like I think that's pretty normal like that's sort of how most people through adolescence how their relationships with their parents that's generally how it goes um this like the childlike wonder and belief you have in your parents um, and the need you have to for them to protect you. And then like 
it's such a like a cliche of teenagers hating their parents, but it's also like a thing that people do because otherwise separating from them would be too painful. Um, and then sort of ideally in adulthood, there's some kind of um, synthesis and you you neither worship nor hate them anymore. Um, and I guess that's part of what makes the book resonate so much with so many people and why it's so popular is that um, even though the, circ- the story is so extreme, the characters are so, they're not caricatures or really like larger than life but they're um certainly um i mean they're exaggerated like the like yeah but they're still realistic mostly i mean it's not like Um, they're it's not it's not that they're you know character traits are exaggerated it's more like the circumstances of the story are exaggerated yeah um yeah but that it's a pretty standard journey for a person a person to take um emotionally i th- i think is part of the genius of the book definitely it's actually as, as you were saying that i kind of um i'm sorry i like keep on bringing up claire because again she was like my favorite part of the book but i think her relationship with claire kind of goes through a very similar um shift as well it just happens a lot quicker there's you know she she starts off idolizing idolizing her when she first meets her and the way that she treats her you know all of these classes she feels like she found sort of a substitute mother figure and then right before her death when she sees her fall apart during her depressive episode and even right before she commits suicide um there's a part where she talks about how how much she started hating these little things that she used to love about her and like it's very similar to like yeah again like just some normal sort of uh, progressions of someone someone's relationship with their parent but um it was interesting as well when you were saying that like the book sort of showed you that there was a way of dealing with pain by turning it into art and writing and all these things. I think um, I didn't think of it like this before, but you're right, because the way the way that all of the characters um, survive in the book, the way that Astrid and then there's this whole subplot in, in the book, uh, or I guess sort of the philosophy of both Astrid and Ingrid that um, they're survivalists. It's like no matter what, staying alive is worth it. And the way that they do it, both of them, is by sort of channeling their experiences into something bigger, like by creating art or writing poetry. Yeah. And I mean, Ingrid does that by writing her poems about like her prison experience. She becomes a lot more well-known and famous by doing it. Her career really takes off when she's in prison. And with Ingrid as well, like she, especially like the, um, her last art project that we're told about, the suitcases yeah. that she makes to yeah. every single one of her foster parents, that that really is sort of like a very um, overt <laughs> illustration of that. Yeah, I, I think that last part of the book is so beautiful. Um, the, the description of the suitcases and how like she's able to to sort of draw out wisdom from even these like most horrific experiences um and like it's not without effort like it's not like sort of like a an easy cliche like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type of a thing like um she's very open about being broken by her whole experience then that's one of the most sort of i guess beautiful and heartbreaking parts of the book is the fact that she's very open about the fact that no she doesn't it's not like he made her stronger he destroyed her in a lot of ways it's just made her the person she was supposed to be and I love the way she talks about 
Berlin suiting her because of that, that she likes living sort of among the rubble and um, the, the sort of the ruins. And I think Berlin's probably changed a lot even since this book was, was written, but it's still a city that's really full of memorials in a way that like no other city I've ever been to is um, like, it's a, because it's a city that's been chastened, you know, it's the capital of an empire that lost a war. So like the, um, there are just, there are reminders of, of it, of, you know, unimaginable horror literally everywhere. Like the apartment I lived in was across the street from the building that had been the Jewish orphanage. And it can be kind of exhausting, um, the sort of ever presence of, of that. Um, it's hard to imagine what like New York City would look like if there were like physical reminders of like all the slaves that are buried here. Um, it would be a completely different city. It would be a totally different place to live in, completely different place to walk around. Like um, I do think um, the the contrast between LA and Berlin in the book is really interesting. Um, and I don't know Los Angeles very well, but um, I do think the way Astrid sort of journeys around it as she moves from foster home to foster home and she's sort of different parts of LA is kind of interesting. And I imagine is super interesting if you actually know that city. Yeah. No, I mean, because she talks about LA being sort of empty and devoid of history. She describes it as being like white and plastic and superficial, especially like at the end of the book where she compares it to Berlin and why she feels a lot more at home in Berlin. But I also just thought of, um, because in the book, it it was left out of the film, but in the book, she gets attacked by a dog and she's left with horrible scars that run from her cheek to her, um, I guess, her legs, I think. And she talks about that experience and those injuries um, as being like sort of cathartic for her because she finally looked like she felt like inside. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's a connection between that and like her going from LA to Berlin as well. Like sort of like it suited her more because the outside looked more like what she felt like inside. <laughs> yeah. And of course, like American cities or even U- European cities that like feel super like shiny and new, like it's fake. Like it's, it, it's that it looks like that by design. Um, and I, like it, it makes it makes sense that um, a place that's forced to be in touch with its history in the way that it, that Astrid is forced to be in touch with every bad thing that's ever happened to her, um, you know, however much she's accepted accepted those things and gleaned wisdom from them, uh, that doesn't you know render them any less traumatic. Uh, it, it just, it makes a lot of sense that that's somewhere where she would feel more at home. Absolutely. I mean, she's like, I mean, no one can, you know, survive those kind of experiences unscarred, but she literally doesn't, you know, she, she has physical injuries and physical sort of manifestations of that pain on her body to show for them. Yeah. And uh, to bring up Olivia again, because um, she, she gets those, she gets attacked by a dog right when Olivia leaves to go to Europe as well. And that's when that happens to her. And when she comes back, she sort of points out, points them out to her. And she's like, you know, what happened to you? And she's like, oh, you know, I finally feel 
like what I look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that was another thing that like reading it as an adult felt very different than reading it when I was younger, because it's like so weird um, and unsettling to like Astrid cynicism in the, in that part of the book is so unsettling uh, because she's, so, because she's so young um, and to, like the way she talks about herself and her life at that age is really upsetting um, and just like completely tragic. Yeah. But again, I, I, I do like the fact that Janet Finch doesn't really shy away from depicting her um, sort of teenage desires, because I think a lot of authors don't quite dare to go there because, you know, we have this idea of teenage girls as like innocent and um, naive when it comes to relationships and sex. And obviously she is as well, because she is a child. There is the age factor, but she doesn't shy away from depicting her desires. However, ridiculous or unrealistic they are like there's a bit um right around when she gets close with olivia for the first time she talks about how she imagines herself having three boyfriends when she's older and like one is yes. the one who's going to give her yes, money the one is the attractive one and one who is older than her yeah yeah i remember that part i mean astra's such a fascinating and complex character and you know we spend so much time in her head and we get to know her so well over the course of the book. Um, and I think one of the things that makes the book great is how interesting she is, but also how normal um, that even though she's, you know, wildly intelligent and also like deeply traumatized um, so many of her desires and fears and are just very normal and, I, I, that's, I think, maybe like another reason for the the book's huge popularity is I think I think it's hard to to imagine a reader who doesn't see anything of themselves in Astrid. I could sell these things; people want to buy them. But I'd set all this on fire first. She'd light that. That's what she would do. She'd make it just to burn it. Like, just as the characters in the book sort of express their feelings by um, making art out of it, and as you said, like, that influenced you to write as well, I think there's something to be said about the way that we channel our pain into um, content now as well, and the way that we make sort of, the way that we write about our experiences online and the way that we sort of make fun of our own experiences due to the format of how we just interact with each other online in general. It's kind of all belittled one way or another. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how anyone posts, like manages to post anything earnest online. Like I, that seems like so terrifying to me. So I guess I, I, I mean, I did once like God, like when I was in college, just like stupid little thing that I embroidered got like half a million notes on Tumblr which is like the dumbest most useless way to be internet famous because it's impossible to monetize like I got nothing out of it um yeah um but like part of the reason I lasted like a month on Twitter um my publisher wanted me to get a Twitter and I refused for the longest time. And then I gave in and then I gave up because I just, I felt like I couldn't 
say anything just true. Like I had to make it into a joke. Um, yeah. <laughs> otherwise I felt completely uncomfortable and vulnerable and subject to ridicule or like worse, like just like being ignored to like say something sincere and have like no one reply to it just like felt so terrible. And that I was like, fuck this. I'm like, like fiction just provides so much more um, armor. Um, yeah. Even if it like no one reads books anymore. Um, I mean, I get like, I mean, there's also a lot of more leeway when it comes to writing and art in general, right? Like you can, there's also like a certain level of detachment because when you're, unless you're writing about your, the truth about your experiences, like confessionally, you know, like Elizabeth Wurzel or whatever, like as long as you're not exposing yourself in that way, as long as you're writing fiction or, you know, sort of fictionalizing your personal experiences, there is a lot more protection that comes from it it's not the same as you making fun of it but it's also one like hope but I think there is increasingly like and I think this is sort of an internet like I think this is the internet's fault I'm not sure um like more pressure on authors of fiction to be more like journalists and more like or more like authors of memoir like um, I thought it was like pretty, I don't know if you read my dark Vanessa. I know I haven't. It's been on my list forever. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's great, but there is before it came out, there's like this pretty revolting push online for, for Kate Elizabeth Russell, the author to like disclose whether or not she had herself been a victim of abuse in order to like say whether or not she had the right to uh, write about it in a novel, which is just horrifying on a lot of levels. Um, I think um, that. uh, um, But I think it also completely misses the point of fiction, right? Like even if the exact same experience didn't happen, to you exactly as you describe it doesn't mean that you didn't feel like it happened to you because a lot of things, you know, obviously like there's different ways in a way that somebody can inflict pain and the way that you can feel your own pain. And just because it was one thing doesn't mean it doesn't feel like the other, if that makes sense. Yeah. And certainly there is bad fiction and there are writers who write unconvincingly about experiences they haven't had but there are also writers who write unconvincingly about experiences they have had so and the idea that no one can possibly have empathy for experiences that are not identical to their own is to me just absurd and you know contrary to like if that's true then there's no point in making or consuming art at all um I also like the proliferation of the term lived experiences drives me crazy because like that's there are no other experiences like imagined experiences I guess I don't yeah, know. But then that's not but then that's a whole different thing that like, yeah. then, then, like then you'd be talking about that I don't know I don't know what the point of, of that term is but I mean, yeah, but it, but it would be like asking Janet Finch whether or not she'd been in foster care as well, whether or not she has the right to write about it, because like, that's not the point of this. And I'm sure like somebody who has been 
through those experiences could find a lot of flaws in the book because I'm sure she, her depiction of the actual systems are not exactly precise or ideal. How could they be, right? Because also, like, I think the book kind of has like a dreamy quality to it. It shifts from one um, like narrative thread to the other, has time jumps and so on. So it doesn't quite describe to you how the foster system, the foster care system, works. So, but that's not the point of the book at all. Like she's not criticizing the system as much as she's just depicting human experiences within a particular structure. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would be like someone reading the Odyssey and being like, that's not how boats work. Like it, it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's not, it's, that's not the point. That's not really what it's about. Yeah. Um, and like, if you want to like, read an accurate depiction of the American foster care system, read a nonfiction book about the American foster care system. Like those exist. And like, I just expecting not expecting novelists to do the work of journalists doesn't do anyone any favors. Um, It's um, and expecting novels to deliver factual information um, only leads to disappointment. Absolutely. Yeah. And it also, I think, because the way that fiction works in general, like it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be descriptive in a sense that it doesn't have to describe the setting as much as it has to make you feel like you're inside of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like expecting, as you said, like expecting accuracy from it is pointless and disappointing at the end of the day. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, that's sort of the point of like self-expression in general, right? That it doesn't like, you can talk about your experiences and leave out certain details and, you know, mold it into how you see it. Like, I think any sort of, any form, like whether, you know, whether it is that you write a poem about it or you write a story about it or you make a painting or a photograph, like the way every every single medium has its own rules that shape the story that you're trying to tell through that medium. So it's like an expecting every medium to represent the story and the narrative in a sort of, in a defined completely comprehensible and understandable way is pointless in general. And I think that's also why, like, um, it's interesting that you said that you found Twitter really uncomfortable because it's the opposite with Instagram for me. Like I can't, like, there's something about Instagram that throws me off completely. Like I try to like run a page for this podcast and I couldn't do it. Like there's something that just drives me completely insane. And like, I think that's the case for everybody who's like trying to express themselves for like traditional mediums or online in general is that you kind of have to find the thing that works for you and expecting everyone to be able to do all of them is insane. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, some people are really good at it, I guess. Um, I think that's sort of just like a new kind of skill set, like being a person who's good at being online something that didn't exist before, but now it does. Like if you're good at presenting yourself online and if you're good at interacting with people online, like that's like a real skill. That's something you can get paid to do, you know? Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, Not even necessarily being like particularly like, like funny or brilliant or beautiful online, but just being like, 
um, compelling in some way. Um, like if you're able to do that, that in and of itself is can be a career. Um, maybe maybe it's an art form. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know either, to be honest. But I think the sort of the 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 impulse that drives us all to do it is very similar to the impulse that to like create art, to like create something out of your experiences, to like share it one way or another, like express, you know, self-expression. And like, I find it interesting as well. Like um, I get to like bring up Claire again. There's again, like a bit in the book where um, I think it's when they're visiting um, Astrid's mother in prison for the first time and she talks about you know like oh you're you know you're a poet like it's so wonderful she says um and I'm I'm barely even an actress like sort of I think and then there's another bit as well that kind of goes along with it where Astra describes seeing Claire on screen for the first time and seeing the way that she sort of bled all over like her acting was so sort of transparent that it made her feel pain by just looking at her because she was opening herself up for so much, for so much by just doing this. And I think, I think again, it just has something to do with like the desire to self-express whatever, whatever medium for whatever medium that you can find to do it. Yeah. And I think a sort of a hope for connection as a result of, of that, but like you, you sort of give up some, of your privacy and maybe some of your dignity and you hope that in exchange you'll be able to connect with people maybe even strangers who you wouldn't connect be able to connect with otherwise um and like that's the reason I haven't gotten rid of my Instagram even though like I want to and I think it's bad for me and I think there's like abundant evidence that Instagram is bad for all of us that social media in general is bad for all of us um, though I think Tumblr is good now because almost no one is on it. And because there's no way to monetize, like, yeah, like people are just weird and just like posting whatever they want. And like, it's really the only social media that I like find like any like fun at all. But like, I, I do worry about like how like isolated I would be if I got rid of my Instagram because I am already like a, I tend to be a pretty reclusive person, Um, uh, which is sort of the, like, I guess sort of the stranglehold um, social media has over most of us. No, definitely. But um, I find the character of Olivia interesting in that way because she's the one who is very open about her lack of desire for connection and intimacy. Like she's very... I wonder if like her her motivations are sort of unclear in the book, but I wonder if that comes from fear or whether it comes from like some sort of inner strength, you know, like, cause the way that she, even the way that she's around Astrid um, at the end is sort of very distant in in a way that, you know, like she prefers, like she's very open about her, um, about the fact that she prefers things and experiences over people. And that's why she's good at what she does. (laughs) Are there people who are really like that? I wonder. I don't know if I've met anyone like that. Um, 
There are people who pretend to be like that. Lots of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if Olivia is telling the truth um, in that regard, because it is weird for an adult woman to have this close of a friendship with like a teenage girl who lives next door, um, even if she does distance herself um, later on. Um, I think the fact her her closeness with Astrid in and of itself indicates some loneliness. Um, and if nothing else, like a desire to say out loud, I prefer objects and experiences to people um, to like say that to another person and make them believe it, which if that were really true, you wouldn't need to tell anyone. Right. Yeah. It's like how the people who are, say that they don't care what other people think are always the most like desperately concerned about what other people think yeah Um, or like people who talk all the time about how they're introverts have you like yeah (laughs) which is like so fucking annoying I don't know if you've encountered a lot of those um uh though that again is something that's only like occurring to me much later um, because sort of the first few times I read the book, I think I perceived Olivia much in the way that Astrid perceives her and and sort of um, idolized her in a similar way. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, she's not literally that, but, you know, like classic femme fatale characters as well that are sort of seen as like, yeah, I mean, the way that they're depicted, you know, just being strong and independent and manipulative, but like in a good way to serve their own interests. And, but yeah. it's not, it, it's a completely artificial construct. Like people like that don't really exist. It's not yeah. a thing, but it's similar to like Ingrid as well, because it's kind of like, she, she constantly talks about strength and being strong and being, you know, capable of anything. But at the end of the day, she's the one who is so incapable of dealing with her own feelings of love and attachment that she kills a person to rid herself yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think, I think maybe a lot of the book is actually about sort of the difference between how people perceive themselves and how they present themselves versus who they really are. Um, and um, Astrid's journey is sort of one of, um, I, I guess, I mean, the self-discovery seems like such a cliche, but I think as sort of a quest to have um, a clear, like, like a, like a sense of identity that isn't an illusion. Yeah. Um, I think I, I really like the way that they sort of depicted that in the film because in the film, like every single family that she moves in with dress, like drastically influences the way that she dresses and presents herself. And especially like the difference is very stark between the way that Claire has her dress and the way that she starts dressing, when she starts um, living with um, Rena the yeah. Russian um, woman who uh, fosters her for like, a while. I feel like that's really clear in the book too, because um, the the details in the book are so um, perfect. Um, Janet Finch is so good at, I think, at, at using like certain objects to um, 
give a sense of a person's whole life. Um, like uh, the training bra that Star buys for her or the Jessica McClintock dress that Claire buys for Astrid that she later sells when she's living with Rena. Um, uh, the perfume, the Penhaligon's perfume that Olivia brings um, Astrid from England that um, her foster mother later smashes. Um, uh, and then the suitcases at the end um, are um, sort of uh, like relics and replicas of, of those of the various items. I, I just th- that's something that really struck me the first time I read it and has stayed with me because I think I had never seen a writer do that before. Um, and it's and Janet Fitch just does it so well. Um, and uh, for it just uh, for me, it, it was really memorable. Finished my mug shots. What do you think? They're great. No, you're not looking. You can't be an artist if you don't see. Like the experience of girlhood and teenhood online is also in a lot of ways linked to objects. And I think mm-hmm. books especially are sort of become objects in like the yeah. universe of the internet, right? Because it's like there's a set number of books to sort of symbolize, um, sort of describe you as a person. You know, like when somebody says that their favorite book is like Lolita or The Virgin Suicides or like The Secret History or whatever, you know exactly the kind of person that it is that they're trying to be. The kind of yeah. person they see themselves as. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's interesting in that way as well. I mean, those examples to me are kind of funny because I feel like everyone loves those books. Like they're just great. They're such like universally beloved books, you know, for for good reasons. Um, I just thought of something actually. I, when I was, <laughs> when I was researching um, the, white, the White Oleander, I came across a clip from The Sharp Objects, the TV show. And yeah. Um, that's another book that deals a lot with like mother daughter relationships. Yes. Yes. Very um, much so. I, yeah. And there's a, there's a scene in the TV show where, um, God, I forget her name. The main character is staying at the hospital because of her issues with, yeah, issues with self-harm and her roommate, the, the teenager that she lives with, she, um, she's reading a copy of White Oleander in bed. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I just just remember that. She is. Um, Yeah. It's, it's like, it only, it's only on the screen for like a split second, but the cover is very distinctive and it hasn't changed from the nineties. And she's just like reading. I just remember that. Because I came across like, it's a great cover. Um, yeah, uh, but sort of another way that the way that like books are used as symbols and like within like yeah. the context of like literature and cinema and you know entertainment in general. Yeah, no, I yeah, um, I'm just remembering something that I thought about earlier, which is um, uh, a quote from the book that like has stuck with me um, you know, for for years and years. Uh, which I think is from one of Ingrid's letters to Astrid, where she says, uh, uh, loneliness is a human condition, get get used to it, sort of something to that, like the best thing you can hope for is to understand yourself, uh, like, something like, like stop trying to get other people to understand you, um, which um, is so interesting. Like it's, I think it's stuck with me so much because like it 
I've felt so differently about it at different times. Um, like sometimes I find it very comforting. Um, like this idea that like loneliness is a human condition because I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with me personally. Um, uh, but then I, the idea that people are incapable of understanding each other um, and there's no point in trying to make oneself understood um, seems to me pretty contrary to like any kind of art making or like any communication that's like deeper than hello, goodbye. Um, right. Yeah, you're right. And Ingrid's a poet. So I think adult readers are supposed to understand her as being full of shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> in a way that I didn't when I first read the book. But um, I just, I think that's a really interesting moment in the book because you know, if, you, if someone who really believed that, why even write a letter? You right. Know? Yeah. Um, why communicate with your daughter at all if you believe that no matter, you know, <laughs> no matter what daughter? So, yeah. That's another actually interesting detail in the book or like, um, I guess a subplot in, in the book, the way that, you know, the way that she falls in love with Ingrid's father, Astrid's father and the way that she has Astrid in the first place. And like, there's also like an interesting detail as well, where she, when Astrid is a little girl, like I think under probably like two years old, Ingrid runs away for a while. And the time that she's away differs in the film and the book. And in the book, it's only a couple of months, but in the film, it's a couple of years, which oh, interesting. is pretty extreme. But, um, and she stays with someone called Annie <laughs> for that time being. So I thought it was also like an interesting detail to add to this like narrative because it's kind of like, even before the murder, even before Inger got arrested, Astrid has always kind of been an orphan of sorts, like abandoned, yeah. no matter what. And so it was always kind of yeah. destined to happen one way or another. Yeah. It's interesting that the film makes that element more extreme, but then cuts out some of the, I guess, to me, at least some sort of grittier parts of the book. So Olivia and then the foster mother who who starves Astrid and her other foster children. Um, I mean, Ingrid in general is a much more likable character in the film than she is in the book. Like, um, I don't know whether it's just Michelle Pfeiffer being like, you know, <laughs> like a pleasant person to look at and her screen presence is, mm -hmm. despite her, you know, she's a really good actress, but her screen presence is still kind of warm. Like there is still some sort yeah. of sort of motherly affection that you get from that character in the film. But in the book, it's, she just comes across as like a, a sociopath, like literally is completely unfeeling and distant and cold. That's interesting. Like I said, I have, I haven't seen the movie in a while, so I, so I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, but I, I mean, it's all, it's always interesting, like what elements of a book are sort of, um, kept or cut. Um, I guess the Hollywood version of a story is sort of typically like supposed to be the more like universally palatable and appealing version. Like the, the one 
that's less likely to offend or alienate an audience. Um, like how in like the film versions of Lolita, she's much older than she is in the book. Yeah. Um, uh, like in the book, she's very much a child and in the films, she's a teenager. Um, uh, I think it's also really interesting that in the book, she is released from prison in the end. Like it's very clear, you know, that's what the book's, that's what the book ends with that she, you know, that she finds a newspaper and, on the front page is her mother and it says that she's been released from prison after being wrongly accused and sentenced to nine years or something. Mm -hmm. And in the film, the ending sort of open-ended, like you don't know whether or not she's going to get out or not. Really? In the film, it's open-ended? Yeah, it is. They, they don't, that, they don't tell you whether or not she gets released. That, that seems like, a, like I would almost expect it to be the other way around. Um, but in a way it makes sense because they make it very clear that she did murder him. Right. And the book still kind of redeems her by having her be released from prison. Right. Despite all of her sins. But I mean, in the film, she's the not. Film, yeah. That letting a, a murderer walk free would not be as that might make people upset. I don't know. Um, I, I think that that's a way that's, studios have to think to some extent and I, I think that's a way that writers really shouldn't think um yeah <laughs> like that's I, I think once you sort of start getting those voices in your head I think you can just get so lost um that it's hard to write anything at all right yeah I mean I, I think the book itself kind of deals with that um sort of the interaction between that happens between like the artists and the audience and the art and the audience and the way that you can kind of craft your own story to like please someone or choose to do the opposite through your own like self-expression, yeah. your own art and both like Ingrid and Astrid are dealing with that. And I mean, Claire as well as like the other, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting person. that Claire is trying to be an actress in an era of Hollywood. That's like a lot, or at least, you know, sub a bit more narrow and sort of crueler and, you know, where there's sort of a, a, a stricter definition of what is acceptable. Um, uh, and like this part where she talks about like the sort of the euphemisms that she gets when she's rejected for parts and like how they're basically telling her that she's too old. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, I think there's at least like an effort to pretend that there are sort of, there's sort of room for more kinds of people to appear on screen now than there was in the late nineties. Um, definitely. I mean, the kind of actress she is also is depicted differently in the film and the book, because in the book, she's sort of, um, she's somebody who mostly acts in dramas and plays like the distant wife and in the film she's a horror movie actress so it's like oh beauty. really yeah um that's interesting like slasher film kind of and, and and in the film it's kind of implied that she's really bad at her job well in the book she's supposed to be a great actress she's just too sensitive to really do it and survive yeah I think the book kind of deals a lot with the question of genius and excellence as well and like mm -hmm. talent um, a lot more than, than the film does. And just like in general, I think it's really interesting that the book does, 
you know, <laughs> question our own definitions of what those things mean. Yeah, there's a part I remember really clearly where Astrid's talking about her mother and saying that, like, to her, the most important thing was beauty, that either you were beautiful or you did things beautifully or you didn't exist. Um which is like a very harsh way of seeing the world and seeing other people because like not everything is beautiful. Like that's just not a complete picture. Absolutely. Um, But then also at the same time, I guess in a way that Astrid chooses to deal with that philosophy is not to, you know, go against it, but she chooses to like, as cliche as that sounds, she chooses to like see the beautiful in everything that she deals with. And I think it's very evident and like, especially like with, um, he's a much bigger part in, in the film that he's in the book, but Paul, um, Grot, like her boyfriend, yeah. when she dances up with in Berlin, it's kind of uh, implied that he's really unattractive in a way that she sort of chooses to, or at least that he's not as attractive as she is in the way that she sort of, you know, she chooses to see the good in him while instead of, and the beautiful in him, instead of looking for someone who's like physically more, you know, like it's the same sort of philosophy, just the approach to it is different because at the end she yeah. is sort of her mother's daughter. Yeah. I mean, could you maybe say that Astrid's, Astrid's sort of personal philosophy is a kind of like dialectic between beauty and ugliness that yeah. instead of like rejecting or ignoring ugliness because she's unable to, I mean, she's because of her sort of internal and physical scars um, and because of the way, like the way her mother has abandoned her, like to this very harsh world, like she can't, you know, live in this like beautiful fairy world that her mother wants to um, create for the two of them. Uh, So um. No, I think you're very right. I think she does kind of live in that space between the beautiful and the ugly. Like, you know, her being sort of naturally beautiful and attractive and appealing to other people and sort of the dichotomy between that and like her physical scars and, you know, all the things that she had to go through and the the way that she feels on the inside and people that she deals with along the way and so on. It's like, she does really exist in that space. And in a lot of ways, like the book is her trying to find herself in that space and define for herself what it means to you know, exist in, in, in that space between beauty and ugliness and how she can, how she can, how she can exist as a person in an ugly world while also, you know, only cherishing the beautiful, if that makes sense, as her mother taught her. Yes. Yes. I think you're right. I think a very, I think one of my favorite quotes from the book is when, um, one of her, um, foster sisters her friend Yvonne is giving birth to her child Mm -hmm. and um she's calling out for her mother and there's this um I'm I'm just paraphrasing it but there's this bit where she talks about how like what Yvonne was really calling out for was not her mother as the mother who abandoned her who let her boyfriend rape her and so on but the mother as as a concept like the mother (laughs) mother of all and yeah. I think that's sort of like a good kind of summary of what we're all looking for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, the relationship between Astrid and Afan is really beautiful. I, th- I think it 
um, I like one of the like really moving parts of the book. Definitely. And I think Yvonne as a character is really fascinating as well because, you know, it's implied that it's not the first time she's given birth to a child in foster care. It is basically a kid herself. And then, then sort of in the fact that she still chooses to do it and give life to someone and something just by the fact that she knows what is most probably going to happen to that kid sort of, sort of, you know, living in the same conditions as she grew up in. Yeah. And and her relationship with Astrid and just, I, I think her last foster home in general is like a very um, important part of the story. Yeah. Definitely. Do you think that um, she's going to like, because the ending of the book is kind of open-ended as well in the sense that we, you know, she, um, doesn't know whether or not she wants to go back to her mother and live with her in America and go to college and sort of try to like um, get back I don't think time. she will. I, I didn't, I never really thought that she would. I, I can't imagine her wanting to sort of be around people her own age who have lived so differently from her and who probably wouldn't really understand her. Um, and to whom she would probably have a very hard time relating. Um, I mean, the, the only people her own age who Astrid is able to relate to in the book are other foster kids. Um, and um, like there's a scene when she's living with Rena where she sells the Jessica McClintock dress that Claire bought her to a girl her own age who's with her her parents and um like it, it like is reflecting on the difference between herself and and that girl um and so i just like it's just very hard to for me to imagine her choosing to be in that kind of environment um or ever giving it seems like she's has a certain level of independence and freedom at the end of the book um, though it is contingent on Paul, um, which is interesting because that because that's sort of like a footnote um, that like it's sort of because of Paul's sort of underground success as a comic book artist that they're able to like sort of like perpetually couch surf. Um, but it's um, interesting that despite going through so many, because um, the book is mostly about her connection with and relationship with other women and it ends with her being with a man (laughs) which is like an interesting contrast and it's also something that all of the women that she encounters along the way struggle with one way or another you know I have warned her against yeah yeah I don't know I I mean I think we're supposed to see um, Paul is a good guy. I mean, there's nothing in the book to suggest otherwise. And they're like, certainly they like have this like pretty profound shared experience. Um, I don't know if we're supposed to think about like what would happen to Astrid if that relationship went south, like what that would mean for her, like financially or like, I mean, it's kind of implied. Does she have a visa? Like what, like what, like what, (laughs) like, no, I'm worried. I don't know for, but I I don't know if those are 
necessarily questions that um but in a way it's kind of implied yeah. that she might um end up with um uh, the professor from that art school that she goes to classes at for free like the one who sneaks oh. her into his lectures because there's I don't like, remember that but I I mean I do think that she'll be okay kind of my sense is that compared to her childhood her adulthood is going to be relatively easy um that she has sort of acquired so much wisdom and knowledge and um like a a survival instinct that should like she'll be okay in a way that her mother and Claire and Star or but and Olivia like um even that like even if things with Paul don't work out she'll still figure things out in a way that they wouldn't be able to. 